Welcome to Which Decade is Tops of Pops. We're up to episode five of season two, so we're nearly halfway through. I'm here with Nick Parkhouse. Hi, Nick. Hello. And I'm here with DJ Trev, who was unable to attend the results bulletin, but he's here with us for the full episode. Welcome back, Trev. Hello there. Sorry I missed the results bit. My computer is... What are those words that we put in when we're not swearing? Because it's all of them. It's all of them. Waste. It's loving waste. (laughs) <laughs> and it's a bit of a garden. Okay, right, cracking on. The Magic Randomizer has dealt us a year suffix of two and a chart position of six, which means we'll be looking at tunes that are number six in the charts on June the 1st in 1962, 1972, all the way through to 2012. The playlist info, the YouTube playlist, you can find at tinyurl.com forward slash which decade 25Y. If you want the Spotify, it's which decade 25S for Spotify. If you want the extracts of bonus bits, it's which decade 25E for extras. Let's crack straight on with the 60s. This is Mike Zahn with Wendy Richard and Come Outside. It was the first of four top 40 hits for Mike Zahn between 1962 and 1963. Reached number one, stayed there for two weeks, but his next three hits progressively peaked lower in the charts. A cover of Come Outside by Judge Dredd peaked at number 14 in 1975. That was on a double A side with Christmas in Dreadland. And then a re-recording of Come Outside by Wendy Richards and Mike Berry, not Mike Zahn, Mike Berry, that peaked at number 97 in 1986. Come Outside was also covered in 1991 when it was that year's official BBC Children in Need single. And two comedy couples tackled the song. Those comedy couples were Bruno Brooks and Liz Kershaw, Samantha Fox and Frank Bruno. Their version failed to chart. So after the hits dried up, Mike Sarn and Wendy Richard both returned to acting, but Wendy Richard had the more successful career thanks to long-running roles in Are You Being Served and in EastEnders. Nick, start with you. Thanks. I mean, that's the hospital pass of all hospital passes, isn't it? Um, so <laughs> I sat down a couple of weeks ago, so I put this on, and I put this on and I listened to it once. And my immediate reaction to it is, oh, waste we're back in that early period of the 60s where everything is terrible and pop music hasn't been invented yet and this is the type of thing that people were buying this was the 12th biggest selling song of 1962 in the uk ladies and gentlemen so i just dismissed it as i mean i saw it described as a comedy record and i thought is it really i mean it's not that funny is it it's just a bloke singing and then in the second verse in comes wendy richard who you get the distinct impression from the record that she and Mike Son have never met, right? And she's she's literally outside shouting through the recording studio window because it doesn't sound like they're in the same booth while they're recording it. And it's just him singing what is a stupid Cockney pop record and her in the background going, it's too cold, a lot. And... I mean, the thing is, Wendy Richard's not even a Cockney. Wendy Richard was born in Middlesbrough. So I don't even know why she's got this 
Oh, a bit of slapping tickled. Going on. I don't, I, so I put it away and then I came back to it earlier this week. And I have to say that having listened to it now probably a dozen times, it has grown on me a little bit. I have warmed to it in a sense that it is harmless fun. I don't know why he wants her to come outside. I, I've never really been able to work out. I mean, she's dancing and he wants her to come outside. I think right at the end, we, we, we work out that he just wants a bit of nookie and he wants to take it round bins presumably but i think that's why he wants her to come outside but um i have actually sort of warmed to it it is a bit of harmless fun kind of way then i went to listen to the best of mike san right and i can't really recommend this so his follow-up single he tried to replicate it with his follow-up single which is called will i what and it's also got a woman on billy davis and he basically does the same thing again and she comes in and goes will i what in a cockney accent in the background it doesn't really work a second time i'll be honest it's a sort of novelty that works once and then he had another couple of hits and then god love him and i know it's 1962 but it hasn't dated very well there's a song on his best of called dodgy looking bird and its chorus is basically you're a dodgy looking bird but i love you and he said he talks about how she looks like a cow and has a big tongue but he loves her anyway and stuff. And it really hasn't dated very well. So going back to acting was probably the best thing he could do. The other thing that I think is absolutely hilarious about this song is Wendy Richard, right? Pauline Fowler, having appeared on this, just shouting in the background, has more UK number one hits than The Carpenters, Depeche Mode, Janet Jackson and Bruce Springsteen combined. Pauline Fowler, right? Has had more number one hits than those people combined which is absolutely brilliant. So I absolutely understand why anybody listening to this would think it was rubbish, but I have come round to it, and actually I don't want to listen to it again, but I'm quite equivocal towards it. I think it's quite sweet. So pronunciation is a big deal in pop music. Not last week, it took me seven goes to understand a Spanish lass who was asking for me to play the band Evanescence because it sounded like she was saying Nirvana and I can't work out how she was pronouncing it in a way that sounded like Nirvana, but that was what it was. And I kept naming Nirvana songs until she told me about the lead singer of I'm not going to try and do her pronunciation, but I was like, oh, you mean Evanescence. There's an artist called M-N-E-K, who I pronounced Manek, as in Manek Mabak, uh, for the first two years of their career. Uh, and going slightly broader, it was only when I heard on Will Smith's seminal pop masterclass, Getting Jiggy With It, him referring to the clothing brand DKNY all up in his eye, that I realised that that wasn't pronounced bikini. Um, and up until the point when Mike said Mike San just then, I didn't really know how you pronounced this guy's name. And you can't Google obscure singers of the 60s pronunciations. So I went with Mike Sani. And so to stay with that, I'm going to give him a Sani rating. The Sani rating is, I'm going to say, cheese savoury. Like, it manages to not be creepy. And I do think if he did it in a less comedy voice and completely removed Wendy Richards from it, because like her performance surely inspired Kim Wilde's comedy asides in Rocking Around the Christmas Tree. I think if you remove all that, and this might be an okay song. As it is, I, I kind of feel what Nick feels. I think it's a bit crap. 
But to go back to the sarni thing, like a cheese savoury sarni, like sat sweating upstairs in the loft, wrapped in cling film in a picnic basket, it's not actually doing any harm. You know, I think like a forgotten cheese sandwich, this is a piece of cheese that has the right to be forgotten. I'm absolutely on board with what Nick says about Wendy Richards. Like she's from Middlesbrough. Her accent is not to be forgiven. I don't think we could say cultural appropriation, but we could just say wrong. No, 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 no. But take out Wendy. If Mike Sarney dialed it down a wee bit and just sort of sang the song, I think this would be an okay pop record. As it is with the 60s, most of the tunes we deal with kind of fill me with nostalgia for the 60s. I didn't even live through the 60s, but they kind of make me wish that I did. This one just reassures me that the 60s were just as crap as every other decade. It's harmless. It is pretty crap, but, you know, it could be done better. But maybe if it had been done better, it would have just sort of completely sank without trace. And here we are years later talking about it. So I don't know what we can take away from it from there. You've just solved a mystery for me there, Trev, because a few episodes ago, in the middle of one of your marvellous anecdotes, you talked about wearing a pair of Dakini jeans. And when I played that back, I was like, this is not a brand I've heard of. Does he mean Sergio Tacchini? Like Chucky Bottoms. But you meant DKNY, which, as any fool knows, stands for Donna Karen New York. It's Donna Karen's diffusion brand, darling. Oh, God. It's always good when I have to explain my jokes about pronunciation <laughs> weeks after. And then people go, oh, he was doing a joke, was he? I think Nick laughed. I think I laughed along politely, not really knowing what he meant. It's all solved. I drove past a uh, hairdresser's in a quite a rough council area of a town once that was obviously two women called Donna and Karen. And they'd call their salon Donna Karen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go on, sue them, sue them. Uh, yeah, right. Novelty songs, eh? In the early 60s, and really quite some way into the 70s, novelty songs were actually quite a well-respected genre of pop music to the extent that the annual Ivan Novello Awards, most years, all the way through to 1974, they would give out an award for most outstanding novelty composition. They didn't do it in 1962, but I think if had they done so, Come Outside would surely have been nominated. The last ever Ivan Novello Award for most outstanding novelty song went to the Cockerel Chorus with Nice One Cyril in 1974. They couldn't top that, so they just scrapped the category going forward. I liked novelty songs when I was little because they were kind of like the, the court jesters of the top 40. They sort of broke the rules and they were kind of silly and absurd and they suggested that kind of anything was possible in pop and you didn't have to follow the normal conventions. And there were loads of novelty hits that I liked as a kid, like Ernie the Fastest Milkman in the West for Benny Hill, Moldy Old Doe, Lieutenant Pigeon, that sort of thing. Looking at 1962 specifically, the big novelty songs of that year were there were two hits by Bernard Cribbins, Hole in the Ground and Right Said Fred. And the other one was Speedy Gonzalez by Pat Boone, all of which I remember from my own childhood. But Come Outside was the biggest one of all. So if you view it through a modern lens, I do think Come Outside remains pretty inoffensive. Mike's arm stays just the right side of creepy. 
And I think Wendy Richard has a nice line in put downs. You do keep on. Or you can go off people. Kind of made me smile. In a way, this song invents the character of Miss Brahms that she went on to play in Are You Being Served? She's almost a stereotypical dumb blonde, but she's actually nobody's fool. And she thinks nothing of dismissing would-be suitors with a snarl and an insult. I think when they were casting her for I being served, they would have remembered what she did in Come Outside. And Wendy Richard herself was certainly no fool. I remember her being a regular guest on Radio 4's marvellous Just a Minute. And she was reliably a skillful and witty contestant in a way that you maybe not have expected had you known it was Miss Brahms. So in my opinion, it's Wendy Richard's comic chops that saved the record. And as Nick mentioned, when Mike Zahn tried to repeat the exact same trick with Will I What, her replacement is given far less to do and she does it far less well. That makes me wonder whether Wendy Richard came up with her own ad-libbed put-downs on the record, but she's not given the writing credit, so we'll never know for sure. As for Mike Zahn, he went on to have a short and ill-fated spell as a film director. And this short and ill-fated spell suggests more of a dark side than we get to see on this, what is an essentially innocent little record. So while shooting a 1968 film called Joanna, he first of all started having an affair with the title character. Then he started physically assaulting her during the filming, claiming in an interview that this was, quote, the only way to direct this girl, otherwise she's very cheeky. She has to be shown. And then his film directing career crashed and burned with Myra Breckenridge in 1970. Now, Myra Breckenridge remains regularly listed as one of the worst films ever made, to the extent it now has cult status. It starred Raquel Welsh as a trans woman fraudster with a mission to subjugate the male sex through BDSM, who ends up shafting one of her male students against his will with a strap on. Raquel Welsh herself said the only good thing about the film was the clothes, designed by Edith Head, legendary costumier. And Mike Zahn's behaviour on set was so bad that he was never asked to direct another movie. This is all rather reminiscent of what we had with Anthony Newley, because he made a grand folly career-ending flop in that Hieronymus Merkin film we did with Joan Collins. Two former singers, they were both trying to like, emulate Fellini and create a masterpiece. Both of them spectacularly failed. Connections, connections. I like the way you've just described Mike Son as a singer well, there, but anyway. He did come full circle, Mike Son. He did the song Come Outside, where he's trying to encourage a lady out into the car park for whatever reason. And he also recorded a song called Come Inside, where he was an HP collector knocking on people's doors and was invited in by ladies for a cup of tea. So he had both Come Outside and Come Inside. He played well, both roles in his pop career. And there's not a lot of artists done that, have they? Put themselves on both sides of their songs. Indeed not. It's interesting that when Wendy Richard re-recorded Come Outside in 1986, so she's just been in EastEnders for a year, so she was capitalising on a newfound fame. And on the 1986 version, she actually got top billing, but she didn't do it with Mike Sarn. She did it with Mike Berry, who was having hits in the early 60s in the same way. Makes me wonder whether she made a conscious decision to steer well clear of Mike Sarn. Based on what I've heard about his film directing, that would add up. Wendy Richards' comedy chops totally deserts her on the 1986 version, by the way. It is appalling. 
I think the um, idea that novelty records were kind of more respected in the 60s, that's that's quite interesting because there's an, there's been an awful lot in the 70s that by that stage, it feels like we're finding it hard to define whether or not it's novelty or whether or not, you know, they are legitimate band. You know, like the Shawadiwadis of the world. Are, are they a joke band or is it, you know, deadly serious? Which is kind of where things are nowadays. And I mean, there are bands at the moment who are, very obviously joke bands tenacious d they are clearly comedians but their music is fantastic steel panther musically are great and it's all megalols little big a great one their production side of things for doing dance music we're back to donk again you know they're doing really really good stuff but it's very well observed comedy as well the line between is this novelty you know if you referred to someone as a novelty act these days, I think it would be seen as an insult. Certainly there wouldn't be an award for best novelty song. No one would want it. But there are lots of novelty artists. Lonely Island do some great tunes. I think there's a difference between a comedy act and a novelty record. So a novelty record is a one-off. It's not going to sound like anything else those people might have made before and after it. And I think that knocks out some of those comedy acts that you've mentioned. LMFAO come quite close to being a novelty act, but they had, was it two or three songs in the same vein? So maybe it doesn't count. In terms of the Iron and Velo Awards, you'd think these were terribly highbrow songwriting awards given to the cream of the profession. Right. The Ivan Novello Award for the most outstanding lyric of the year in, what was it, 1978, went to... Matchstalk Men and Matchstalk Cats and Dogs by Brian and Michael. A songwriter's for you. <laughs> he is very much still with us, Mike Son. He was in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. He was in Les Miserables, the film. So, yes. He gets by. He gets by. Let's move on to... This is Lindisfarne with Lady Eleanor. It was the second of four top ten hits for Lindisfarne, three of them being in the 1970s. And then in 1990, they had their highest charting hits when they backed Gaza on his version of Fog on the Time. That peaked at number two, one place ahead of Lady Eleanor, that peaked at number three. Although this charted after their debut hit, which was Meet Me on the Corner, it was actually a re-release or a re-promotion of an earlier single from May 1971, which had failed to chart at the time. It was written by band member Alan Hull, who was kind of the de facto leader of Lindisfarne. He remained with them until his death in 1995. The band are still in existence today, but all the original members retired one by one, and there's now only one member that remains for the 1972 lineup. After the wealth of riches that we've had in the last episode, Reading this song selection for this time out really felt like a boom back to reality, sort of wet fish in the face kind of moment. Certainly Mike Sarney seemed to confirm, maybe not the worst, but, you know, that we weren't going to be having great things in this episode. And when I read Lindisfarne, I was like, now the thing of it is, I know Lindisfarne, a legitimate band. I've got one of their albums on vinyl, but... It is their song with Gaza. We're back straight away to Novelty Records mm. that sticks in my mind. It's possibly my age, you know, that 
was a key moment in my life and football was all happening and all that kind of stuff. But that song is an absolute, I, I guess you could say red flag for me uh, when it comes to Lindisfarne. But I know Lindisfarne are a better band than that. But it's like the worst example of a bright side effect that you could get because for me, that tune doesn't just eclipse everything else in the zeitgeist, everything else you know about them. It doesn't even sound particularly like them. At least Mr. Brightside sounds like the Killers. Maybe did Smokey fall into that trap too with their biggest tune? But certainly, I know Lindisfarne are a legitimate band, but if someone says Lindisfarne, I'm like, oh God. As it is, Lady Eleanor's actually, it's a nice enough song. Now, I, I like a bit of folk, but I can't say that I like, you know, I know a great deal about folk. And I, I think a lot of people are like that with folk. It's one of those genres, if you mention it, an awful lot of people will instantly just go, not a clue. But to have a folk song that runs around in the charts, they're, they're not exactly prolific. And I think it's nice to have a representation. There is something to this particular tune that reminds me of Radiohead's High and Dry single. I think it might be the um, jangly guitar line in it. If there was a market for mashups between Radiohead and Lindisfarne, which I don't think there is, I think you'd have a pretty safe mashup there. If I was to prove my musical knowledge of 70s folk music as a DJ, I'd be playing Basket of Light by Pentangle, which actually came out in the 1960s, uh, which kind of proves exactly how much I know about folk music. But yeah, this is a nice tune. I'm the same as Trent. When this came out, the randomizer, I thought, oh, Fog on the Tyne. And their version of Fog on the Tyne is fine. I don't know whether I like it any more or less than the Gaza version, to be perfectly honest with you. But there you go. So I have a slightly different opinion on this. So when I heard this for the first time, I was listening to it. And it's a bit like I'm going to throw all this sort of jangly folk music into one massive bucket. And this is going to be totally unfair. But if I shut my eyes while listening to it, I can see people in Arthurian costume drinking mead out of a tungsten flagon. You know, that's what this conjures up to me. Big beards, men in big fur coats, in a wood-panelled room, eating a roast boar with an apple in its mouth. And that's the image that this conjures up for me. It's somehow like it's come from the 1600s or something. So I thought, OK, well, it's, I mean, it's fine. And then I thought, oh, let's do a bit more Lindisfarne. Let's do this properly. And actually, I found some Lindisfarne songs I like a lot more than this one. That one you mentioned might meet me on the corner. It's better. Run From Home is lovely. And then I listened to it for about another 15 minutes and then got totally fed up with it. And it just sounded like, you know, something you'd play at a battle reenactment society. So I read that this was inspired by Edgar Allan's Poe's The Fall of the House of Usher. Um, I think there is a reference to Usher in the opening lyrics and stuff. I thought, oh, that's interesting because there's a five song instrumental suite on the Alan Parsons project's uh, Tales of Mystery and Imagination that is also based on the fall of the House of Usher. If we go for a House of Usher based 70s musical derivative, I would go for the Alan Parsons project, not this Lindisfarne one. And if you'll excuse the pun, I did find Lady Eleanor a little Poe faced. I will not excuse the pun. Right. <laughs> I thought you might not. Um, so I think I'm with Trev. I'm not a huge fan of it, but I think for totally different reasons. I'm sure it's lovely and I'm sure it's beautifully created and inventive and at the time was, you know, pushing the boundaries of folk music or whatever it was. It just washes over me a little bit and it it's not the sort of thing I, I love. Although it has introduced me to a couple of other Lindisfarne songs that I might listen to again in the future. So, yeah. 
I mentioned that um, Lady Eleanor had come out before Meet Me on the Corner and flopped, and it was the record label, Charisma Records, it was their idea to re-promote it on the back of Meet Me on the Corner. And it was a smart commercial move, because what it did is it boosted the sales of Lindisfarne's first album, which has Lady Eleanor, that hadn't originally charted at all when it first came out. And as a result of this single's success, that first album ended up peaking at number eight in the album charts this very month. And that meant that briefly Lindisfarne had two albums in the album's top 10 in June 72. The second album, Fog on the Tyne, that had already spent four weeks at number one earlier in the year. Lindisfarne were massive in 1972. They were one of the year's biggest bands. So the Fog on the Tyne album, that contained Meet Me on the Corner. I remember Meet Me on the Corner vividly from its performance on Top of the Pops, and I don't think a recording survives online at all now. I remember it because for the entire duration of the song, one member of the band hit a large bass drum with what I thought was an actual wet fish. It was actually a rubber fish, but I wasn't to know that at the time. That really appealed to me. That was a good novelty, hitting a drum with a fish, I thought. Yeah, Alan Hull's inspiration for the song. The, the, the theory is that he was in the middle of reading Fall of the House of Usher and he had a nightmare while reading it. So yeah, that would account for the appearance of Roderick Usher in the lyrics. But there was no character called Eleanor in that story. However, there was another Poe short story called Eleonora, and Alan Hull is on the record as being an Edgar Allan Poe fan. So I think he conflated the two in his sort of fever dream madness. So, yeah, that leaves its lyrics kind of impossible to fully decode. And Alan Hull himself, he was rather startled by its big success in the charts. There's a quote from him. He gave an interview to Sounds magazine at the time, and he said... He said, well, Lady Eleanor, I don't really understand. I wrote it almost in a trance, and I know it means something personal to me, and it would take a long time to explain. I know it's about death anyway, and I'm very worried about it being a so-called hit because I'm worried about the 17 and 16-year-old girls and boys who buy it. I mean, it's not a pop song, and I don't understand what they think about it. Well, he's right about it not really being a pop song. I mean, for one thing, the intro lasts for just under a minute before the first verse starts. But the chorus is a very strong hook and it's past my occasional test of people instantly singing it back to me in the pub when I mentioned that we'll be talking about it. This does happen from time to time. That mandolin line that Trev thought reminded him of Radiohead's High and Dry. It's very fetching, that mandolin line. I thought it reminded me of Weather With You by Crowded House, but then I played the two side by side and there's only a very passing similarity. But there's an organ in the quieter sections. That reminds me of Why Should Shade of Pale, Procol Harum. That's another big hit with enigmatic, sort of quasi-literary lyrics. And then dropping the arrangement right back to a solo bass guitar after the first two choruses, and then down to a solo acoustic guitar after the third chorus. That's a bold move. And the arrangement as a whole, I think it's definitely done. All those changes of mood and pace, lovely vocal harmonies to boot. So I guess maybe this just sold because it was an accomplished piece of music by a band who were already at the top of their game. Anything they put out would sell at that stage. That's a fuck of a time. 
can't stand fog on the time. It's up there with you shall have a fishy on a little dishy when the boot comes in and I am the Lord of the Dom, said he. It's just fingernails down that blackboard stuff. Sitting in a sleazy snack bar sucking sickly sausage rolls. What? That's the opening line of Gazza's Fog of the Tide, is sitting in a sleazy snack bar, sucking sickly sausage rolls. I really like Nick's um, mental imagery of, you know, what it conjures up for him. You know, the guys in the uh, iron sweaters and stuff like that, because I think that's what it should conjure up. Folk music is meant to do that kind of thing. I think you were sort of phrasing it as a, oh, why you don't like it. But I think for people who do like folk, it would conjure up that and that would be why they do like it. The Northeast's got, and they only, the only ones that I can think of are the Unthanks, but I know there are quite a few successful folky acts from that part of the world. Yeah, big folks in around Newcastle. Yeah. Catherine Tickell is another one. They've got the benefit of having the Sage Centre in Gateshead and they put on, they promote a lot of folk gigs. Really thriving bit. I love folk music and I like 70s folk music. I was a teenage Steve Rice fan fan. This is absolutely in my ballpark. Anything with snoods and fingers and ears and flagons of mead. Well, I think when Nick was talking about the flagons of mead, you know, drinking them out of a horn and the slight Viking feel to it. And, you know, again, that part of the country probably lends into the writing of these types of tunes because it's Viking country, isn't it? And yeah, I thought that was a a really good description, Nick. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Would you like a list of all the top 40 hits that have begun with the word lady and that are about lady somebody? I would. But I will be honest with you, I'm disappointed. I thought Nick was going to give us top 10 hits by people named after peninsulas, uh, places that are only accessible by causeways. So I'll take yours as a second, Mike. All right. In chronological order, we bring on the ladies. This is the House of Ladies of UK pop. So let's start with David Garrick and his Lady Jane. Then we have Peter and Gordon bringing in Lady Godiva. Then we have the Beatles, Lady Madonna. Lady Willpower is next. That's Gary Puckett and the Union Gap. Then she's followed by Lady Darbonville, Cat Stevens. There's Lady Barbara, Herman's Hermits. Lady Rose, Mongo Jerry. Lady Lovebug, Clodagh Rogers. Then we get to Lady Eleanor Lindisfarne, after which it drops off quite a lot. So we've got Lady Marmalade by LaBelle. Then a few years later, Lady Linda, the Beach Boys. Then nothing until the remake of Lady Marmalade in 1998 by All Saints, another remake of Lady Marmalade in 2001 by Christina Aguilera, Lil Kim, Maya and Pink. Finally, we get another Lady Godiva, that's Alex Day, in 2012. And there's only been one more top 40 hit after that that's even got the word lady in its title anywhere. And that's Jessie J with Sexy Lady, in October 2013. There are very few ladies left in pop. Quite a few hoes and bitches, but no ladies. Lady Willpower by Gary Puckett and Union Gap, by the way, is a fantastic record because never have I heard a follow-up record to a big hit sound more like the big hit that it was a follow-up to. I mean, Young Girl was massive, and you can't really listen to Young Girl anymore. It is a bit cringe. Even though it's a great tune, it's a bit like, oh, okay, um... So what I do instead is I just listen to Lady Willpower, which is essentially exactly the same song without the pedo lyrics. And I would encourage you to do the same. It is basically exactly the same song. It's got the same chorus and everything. 
they like it's like they future proofed themselves. Oh, yeah. what if future future generations realise that young girl is well dodgy? Right, we'll do Lady Willpower as well when we're covered. Is it? I mean, you've never heard a song that sounds more similar because I'm assuming you've heard "Cheeky Song" by the Cheeky Girls, followed by "Cheeky Christmas." By the Cheeky Girls, which is the exact same song, but with a sleigh bell over the top. Is it more similar than that? Uh, Lady Willpower doesn't even have a sleigh bell, mate. <laughs> right then, on we go with... This is the return of Tight Fit, this time with Fantasy Island. The third and final top ten hit for Tight Fit peaked at number five. It was the follow-up to The Lion Sleeps Tonight. That peaked at number one, and we covered it in one of our episodes in season one. Fantasy Island was originally recorded by a Dutch band called The Millionaires, and they recorded it in both Dutch and English language versions. Earlier in 1982, it had been entered into the Dutch Eurovision Heats, but it wasn't chosen and it was only a minor hit in the Netherlands. The tight fit conversion that has significantly different lyrics in many places that was released just one month later and did the business over here. It's follow up Secret Heart that only made number 41 in August 1982, at which point the two female members of tight fit left the band that year. Two replacements were drafted in, but after two more flop singles, the band broke up in 1983. Wow. So thanks again to the Magic Randomizer. So for the second time in seven episodes, they've thrown out a band that only had three hits. And we've managed to land on the second of these three hits. You know, we talked a lot about Tight Fit and we talked a lot about The Lion Sleeps Tonight. So, again... The list came up and I thought, oh God, here we go again. And I obviously listened to Fantasy Island when we talked about it fairly recently. And again, a bit like Come Outside, having listened to it a few more times since then, I actually really like it. Lion Sleeps Tonight, going back to what we were saying originally, is a bit of a novelty song. I know it's based on an old 1930s South African song and all that sort of thing. So I know that it's that's its origin and stuff. But let's face it, the 80s version of The Lion Sleep Tonight by Tight Fit is a novelty record, right? We pretty much agree on that. Fantasy Island is not a novelty record, right? Fantasy Island is the proper 1982 synth pop single. So then I went to find the Millionaires version, the Dutch Eurovision version. Now, Jesus wept. They are trying to be ABBA. <laughs> Even the video, it's two blokes, two women, you know, the women standing in the middle in matching costume, and the arrangement of it is even more ABBA than ABBA you could possibly imagine. And before I knew any of what you just said, I thought, this sounds like a Eurovision song to me. It immediately made me think of Bardo, One Step Further, which was the UK Eurovision entry, coincidentally, in this same year. Uh, in Harrogate, of all places, came seventh, um, did fairly respectably. And then, obviously, I read up about, oh, my, it is a, it is a Eurovision song. Came second in the Dutch heats. I mean, the Dutch are idiots because the song they picked came 16th in actual Eurovision, whereas actually I think this would have done quite a lot better than that, I reckon, bearing in mind what was going on in the Eurovision in the early 80s. Anyway, so there's a little instrumental break before the chorus in a sort of in a minor key, weird little synth riff, which I really like. It's really unusual. The song itself runs out of steam after about two minutes. but actually. It's really grown on me. I like it a lot more than I like The Lion Sleeps Tonight. 
So for a piece of essentially entirely throwaway quasi Eurovision early 80s synth pop, actually, I think it's a pretty decent record. So if Lindisfarne successfully subverted my expectations from what I had expected with their somewhat later novelty song with a back catalogue of Worthy Musical Endeavour, can Tight Fit do the same? No. Or can they? No, but if this was ABBA, I think we'd be talking about how great it is. You know, ABBA are a bit of a weird band. There's not many other people can get away with what ABBA do. Maybe Steps, but that's kind of it. I pressed play on this and immediately all my walls went up. I was cringing in muscles that I didn't know that I had. And then because I'm duty bound to listen to the entire thing, I was like, I found myself sort of nodding along. And then by the end of it, I was like, I'm going to give that another go. And I would urge, because I'm sure there's loads of people who listen to 10 seconds of the songs that come up here and go, God, no, 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 no. Give this another go. It's pretty catchy. There's a sound in it that sounds a bit like a piano. And it's, I think quite possibly a piano. And I find that maybe a little bit jarring. But I think this tune could be waiting for a great cover. I think it's quite all right. I'm not so mad about it that I went and listened to the original version of it. Let's not go completely mental. But after the first bit of sick that I did in my mouth, I think this is okay. I think like Nick, I very much came around to it. Now, I like Lion Sleeps Tonight. So I already was open to the fact that this might be okay. As soon as they came on screen in the video, before I'd heard any music, I was like, no, no, this is not going to be okay. This is going to be very, very bad. And the first sort of 10 seconds seemed to confirm that. But then I reckon if this was a band like ABBA, and I mean, when I say band like ABBA, I mean ABBA, I think we'd be going, this is fantastic. And so why can't somebody else do ABBA and do it very well? I think they are doing this very well. So then by this stage, I've started, you know, really questioning, do I have any musical credibility whatsoever? And YouTube then went on and played some more tight fit songs. And I found myself quite liking them as well. To go back to the Eurovision thing that Nick was mentioning, did they ever represent us at Eurovision? And if not, why not? That was an open goal. I think Tight Fit could be the band. Bring back Tight Fit with a, a modern, up-to-date cheese fest like this, and I think we could finally maybe come second again. When we were talking about the Eurovision the other day, we did send a copycat version of Tight Fit to Eurovision the following year to this, didn't we? In Sweet Dreams, who basically yeah. did a Tight Fit-esque one bloke, two women pop thing. Yeah, because Tight Fit were over by that stage. I mean, one of them did go on to marry Pete Waterman, but then he wouldn't really want to draft Pete Waterman in to write another Eurovision entry because the last time he did so, it came last. Um. Yeah, I listened to the original version by The Millionaires. Wasn't aware of it before. Yeah, fronted by two female singers. One's a blonde, one's a brunette. It seems crazy in retrospect. I hadn't really registered the apparitionist, the song, until I heard their version. But the thing is, doing an Abra sound alike song in spring 1982 could only really have worked in a Eurovision context, given that Eurovision tended to lag behind the times when it comes to modern pop, because in spring 1982, ABBA's popularity was in free fall. Head Over Heels was the first hit not to go top 10 in like forever. At that time, spring 1982, most people thought of ABBA as kind of a bit dated and a bit naff. They came back quickly. 
But this was almost like then the deer, 1982. The tight fit version, well, the production is sparklier. It's more deliberately synthetic with that electric piano, those electronic drums, generally more in tune with 1982 pop of the sort that Dollar were doing with Trevor Horn and that Bucks Fizz and indeed Bardo were doing with Andy Hill. I think that's why it did as well as it did. It's still a poor relative of Dollar's Mirror Mirror and especially of Bucks Fizz's My Camera Never Lies, one of the most underrated number ones of all time. But it was the right sound at the right time and it came off the back of a number one hit. Their third single of 1982, Secret Heart. Now, I think that's actually the best of the lot. I mean, it's almost classy by comparison, but it flopped, number 41. I can totally understand why the women promptly jumped ship after it flopped. There's something about the lineup of Type Fit that never rang true. They seem more obviously like characterless puppets on a string than Dollar and Bucks Fizz ever did. But because I thought at the time this was a lot better than The Lion Sleep Tonight, I thought, oh, well, they're getting their act together a bit with this one, then. I think I've been overrating it in my memory. For me, it's not as good as I thought it was. Okay for one or two plays, but repeated listens. For me, the gloss comes off it quite quickly to reveal the shoddy plastic beneath. I think Trevor's right. I think if Abra had done it in 1977, it would have been massive. I think you're overrating the song composition, though. That nice little bit before the chorus, yeah, you're right. That's a really nice little touch. But I think Abba would have worked a bit harder at the song. They were just a studio band, though, weren't they? Oh, God, yeah. They were just like, in you go, do that. Yeah. So as far as it goes for disposable created pop, you go, yeah, I think that's all right. You know, bearing in mind there's disposable created pop made now that won't age as well as that. An awful lot of it. <laughs> I have to listen to it and go, no, I'm not playing any of that crap. Come on, let's get on to the 90s because... Come on, here come the 90s. Trev is really excited, and I'm sure we're all excited too, to move on to... The 90s! This is The Cure with Friday I'm In Love. It was the last of four top ten hits for The Cure. It peaked at number six. The highest placing hit was Lullaby, that reached number five in 1989. Altogether, The Cure have had 23 UK top 40 hits between 1980 and 2004. Friday I'm In Love was also their final hit in the USA. Peaked at number 18, that made it the second biggest US hit after Love Song, which peaked at number two in the US. So I'm excited to talk about this song. And then I'm looking at my notes. It is the one I've written least about. Now, this is one of those tunes, and there are quite a few tunes that are like this, but for me, at least, I hope I never get asked what decade this came from in like a pop quiz, because even though I've got this on a Now 92 compilation, I know it's on a Now 92 compilation. I'm talking about it right now. I'm still pretty sure on the buzzer, I'd go 80s because that's just where I put this in. I think it sounds quite 80s. You know, musically, things have moved on a bit by 92, and so maybe this is a bit throwback, but that's not to do it down whatsoever. I think it's catchy, it's, it is joyful, and with the hair and the makeup and the type of people who wear Cure T-shirts, I sometimes forget what good pop records they make. There isn't a right lot else I can say about it. Apart from it being one of those tunes that comes on in a jukebox, you just go, yeah, that's good. 
I'll play this a couple of times a year. It always gets a good reaction. I remember seeing them at Leeds Fest and this was the high point of a set, but I've really enjoyed their set. I've not got much more to say about this other than I think it's important that we remember that Robert Smith from The Cure is the only pop star ever to transform into a giant mothman and beat gigantic robotic Barbra Streisand in hand-to-hand combat to save the earth. Uh, and the blank looks that I'm getting from my two co-hosts here clearly mean that they've not watched a TV programme about which I'm talking. So I'm just going to leave them mystified, but I'm sure a lot of people will know exactly what I'm talking about. And it was earth saving. Is this the Cure single that people who love the Cure hate? I'm not saying it's unlike them because they have done other jaunty pop singles. You know, the Love Cats is quite poppy and various others. Boys Don't Cry is quite up-tempo, I suppose. But I do wonder whether the hard Cure fans just get to this and they're like, oh, God, it's this one. I can't think of another example. Do the New Order fans hate Blue Monday, but they love the more obscure stuff? I don't really know. So when I saw this has come up, I mean, this was the one on this list this week that as soon as you come up, you think, oh, I know that's what a great record that is. I'll preempt the results. I'd be very surprised if this doesn't do extremely well this week because I think it's one of those songs that everybody knows. I don't think I know anybody who doesn't like it. There's nothing not to like. For me, it has been slightly tarnished by overexposure, I think, because you only have to turn on a radio station on a bloody Friday and they will be playing this. I used to do university radio when this came out. Every time you go in on a Friday, somebody would be playing this on a Friday. And you're just like, it's a bit like Manic Monday, isn't it? You know, oh, it's you can tell what day of the week it is because they're playing Manic Monday on the radio. So there is a little element of that with this. I mean, if it came on the radio, you'd listen to it. It came on the pub, like Trev says, happily sing along. It's one of those inescapable ones that you will randomly hear it often somewhere. And you're like, oh, here it is again. And if I hadn't heard this for 15 years, I would be going, oh, my God, this is amazing. I love this. I've heard this for years. But because you do hear it all the time, I don't know whether I'm a bit kind of inured to its charm a little bit. There was a phase in the 80s when I was about 14 that I tried to get into The Cure because I thought it would be cool. And I had a sort of half friend at school I wanted to be more friendly with, and they loved The Cure. So I thought, oh, I'll go and buy Boys Don't Cry and get some badges you know, get some cure badges like you had to do in school. And so I tried to get into the cure and then, you know, realised that, you know, on one hand I'm buying Kylie and then on the other hand I'm listening to Killing an Arab by the cure. And you're like, this, these are not the same thing. <laughs> and I couldn't really square that circle in any meaningful way. So my dalliance with the cure didn't last very long, sadly. And then my friend got into New Order and that was much easier to cope with. So I'm finding myself less enthusiastic about this song than I thought I would be, I'll be honest. But that doesn't mean it's not a great song. I just I think it's just the overexposure. So Yeah, if Friday I'm in Love is the song that Cure fans hate, I guess maybe there's a counterpart with R.E.M.'s Shiny Happy People. It wouldn't surprise me if that was a song a lot of R.E.M. fans hate because they're both untypically chirpy. Found some quotes from Robert Smith about this tune. Uh, He says, Friday I'm in Love is a dumb pop song, but it's quite excellent, actually, because it's so absurd. It's so out of character, very optimistic and really out there in happy land. It's nice to get that counterbalance. People think we're supposed to be leaders of some sort of gloom movement. I could sit and write gloomy songs all day long, but I just don't see the point. Then another time he said, we spent such an awful long time to get well known. When it happened, though, I found it very uncomfortable. 
for a long time, I didn't like certain songs because I thought, you're to blame, you bastard. You may be popular. Friday I'm in Love is a perfect example. But on another occasion, he called it one of my three favourite Cure singles ever. That is a bit of a conflicted relationship with the song, I think. Yeah, certainly the happiest Cure single ever. Even happier than the Love Cats. That was pretty damn happy in the first place. I think that after 13 years of making almost exclusively deeply gloomy music, I think Robert Smith rather relished the sheer perversity of doing something so firmly opposite to that. It's almost like sticking two fingers up at people. Yeah, you thought I was miserable all the time. Well, suck on this then. Huh, I'm going to be happy. Ah, see how you like that. Trev thinks it sounds like the 80s. I think this could have come out three or four years later during the Britpop boom. I think it would have slotted right in with the mood of the times with uh, the lightning seeds, dodgy, Boo Radleys. But in June 1992, it didn't have much in common with anything else in the charts. So that was dance music was ruling supreme then. Even in the indie charts of 1992, most of the indie number ones of 1992 were rave records. That's how embedded it was. So I think this would have appealed to a slightly older audience who are feeling alienated by the way that pop music was moving, still wanting to cling on to the bands that they grew up with. Amongst my friendship group, or at least among my straight friendship group, they don't stop clubbing. They were far more likely to dance at house parties. And I was forever being asked to put together party tapes on cassettes for my friends usually three days before the bloody party. Well, it's not too much trouble. Nearly three C90s. Cheers. Friday I'm in Love would have gone on to all of them because I knew I always had to cater for that group of grumpy old Clash fans in the room who hated dance music and were moaning about everything. And it was, it was becoming a struggle to find new stuff that those people would like. Right, now, I loved this at the time. It was my seventh favourite single of 1992. Yes, I've kept all my end-of-year lists. Obviously, I have. But, yeah, I agree with Nick. I've heard it too often over the years. It's been overplayed. Most of my original enjoyment has been steadily wrung out of it. I play it on Friday nights every now and again, like Chauvin, I probably only play it twice a year. It's still a great tune. But I'm almost starting to find it a little annoying now. That's a shame. Would you like to know what my top 10 favourite singles of 1992 were? Because I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> this list was compiled at the very end of 1992. That's my disclaimer caveat. Number 10, Sheila and the Gig by PJ Harvey. Number nine, Metal Mickey by Suede. Number eight, Constant Craving, Katie Lang. Number seven, Friday, I'm in love, The Cure. Number six, Step It Up, Stereo MCs from Nottingham. Number five, Best Things in Life are Free, the CJ McIntosh remix, Luther Vandross and Janet Jackson. Number four, Swathe Again, The Drowners. Number three, Jamiroquai, When You're Gonna Learn. Number two, scratch your head at this one a bit. Number two, People Every Day, Arrested Development. Number one, REM, Man on the Moon. That was my 1992 it was the period after I stopped clubbing and before I started going clubbing again, essentially. So I was being a bit faux mature in the tastes. What year was R.E.M. losing my religion? 91. 91. Because that's, you know, if I had to kind of put two tunes together, I would go, yeah, that sound, that era. So thinking about it in that context, it probably isn't that 80s. I think I put The Cure in the 80s. 
I just go, that oh, yeah. 80s band. I think with the quests, with what Nick was saying about, is this the song that the Cure fans hate? The only way that I can gauge this is through requests. That's my main interaction with people musically generally. And that seems to have gone by the wayside, that type of thing. In the olden days, people would go, can you play some Guns N' Roses, but not Sweet Child of Mine? And again, to go back to the bright side paradox, it would be bright side because that would be the type of tune you would expect people to play. Can you play some Killers? But God, not Mr. Brightside. I'm sick of hearing it. That doesn't really happen anymore. I do remember when you said that, I was like, oh God, yeah, light bulb went off in my head. I remember people saying, can you play some Cure? Not Friday, I'm in love. But people's musical tastes have changed these days. People are a lot more open. The only artists that you really get that with are Billy Joel and Bruce Springsteen that people go, oh, can you play? But, you know, not the ones that people know uh, that might work. Play something else by them. Oh, what about play ABBA but not Dancing Queen? I think that's definitely a thing. Uh, I wouldn't even say that I've got that. I think I play Dancing Queen with as much success as, you know, the slightly deeper cuts but you know i'm not playing deeper cuts oh no i get groans if i play dancing queen oh, I get cheers if i play gimme 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 or voulez vous or even the one who takes it all i think they overplayed because it's a friday thing that is a double-edged blade isn't it because there have been times when i'm like oh I fancy playing that on a saturday night and then you're going yeah but it's so specifically friday can you play it on other days are there loads of tunes with days of the week is that a growth market that you know instead of all the people releasing christmas records trying to get a christmas hit and having a career forever i always say release a song about birthdays because there's only three and one of them's crap you know <laughs> halloween songs there ain't many great halloween songs you think you know loads and then you go oh no actually it soon passed down you know write a song about a tuesday and get guaranteed radio play local radio play for the rest of your life yeah, it's Tuesday. Here are the Arctic Monkeys with their song. Tuesdays are all right, I suppose. So three things. One, if you want a great Halloween album, Andrew Gold, we talked about Never Let Slip Away, did an entire Halloween album, which is great. Yeah, yeah. My favourite song of 1992, according to my list, which I did at the time, again, entirely coincidentally, was Undercover's cover version of Never Let a Slip Away. Okay. Would you like all the top 40 singles with a Friday in the title? Well, it depends. Are you going to manage to shoehorn Andrew Gold in a third time? <laughs> uh, no. I can't even uh, shoehorn Climby Fisher into this list, sadly, but I did try. So, uh, Friday by Wrighton. Is it Wrighton and the Nightcrawlers? Friday by Daniel Bedingfield. Friday Street, Paul Weller. Friday's Child by Will Young. Uh, Friday on My Mind by the Easy Beats and by Gary Moore. Friday I'm in Love by The Cure. Friday Night by the Kids from Fame. Mr. Friday Night by Lisa Moorish, 1997. I, Friday Night by Dubstar. Last Friday Night, Katy Perry. Two number one hits here, Funky Friday and Freaky Friday. Uh, Dave Fredo, Chris Brown, Little Dicky. She Left Me on Friday by Shed Seven. Thank God It's Friday by R. Kelly. And the mighty 911 Party People, Friday Night. You know, I don't think that's a very good list of Friday songs, with the exception of Friday's Child by Will Young, which I think is Wonderful, sublime. Might be my favourite Will Young single, actually. Uh, there was a really good one in there, but I'm not going to ask him to repeat it because there were two absolute dicey artists in there and I don't want to hear them again. Um, okay. But I would say that this wasn't a single. This was an album track from The Darkness. Dancing on a Friday Night is for extended listening, an excellent song. It's 
peak darkness. It's a little bit ridiculous. Uh, and dancing on a Friday night, if you want another great tune about Fridays, get into it. That's the one where he's doing Tuesday gymnastics, Wednesday, yeah. that one, isn't it? And Rebecca Black Friday, obviously, but was never a hit. Right. Let's bring on... This is Enrique Iglesias with Escape. It was the fourth of 11 top 10 hits that he had between 1999 and 2017, and it peaked at number three. His biggest hit was Hero, that spent four weeks at number one in February 2002. This single was the follow-up. And the video co-stars the tennis player Anna Kornikova, who was Enrique's girlfriend at the time. It gives me great pleasure to inform you that they are still together to this day, and they've had three children together. Isn't that nice? Nick? So Trev earlier was talking about how his entire view of Lindisfarne has basically been influenced slash tarnished by Gaza's Fog on the Tyne. My entire view of Enrique Iglesias for the rest of my living days will be defined by him releasing a song called Tonight I'm Loving You. I mean, what was he thinking? And I've read interviews with him where he's saying it's a bit of fun. And, you know, sometimes you meet a girl and, you know, you know, you know that, you know, at the end of the night, that's what you'll be doing kind of thing. But you don't write a song with that in the chorus, do you? It is the most cringe-inducing, toe-curling thing you could possibly do. And I, when you say Enrique Iglesias, in any context, my brain just goes, tonight I'm loving you. And why? And what were you thinking? You could play me any of his other songs, some of which are great. And um, we'll come to this one in a minute. But I just can't get past it. I just can't get past that. Oh, my God, that is horrible. A horrible thing to even think when presumably he was already going out with Anna Kornikova at the time. I was like, oh, you might as well have called a song New Balls, please. Um, <laughs> you know, awful, terrible. Anyway, so we'd had a little bit of a sort of Spanish-influenced Latin arrival on the pop scene by this point. Obviously, Enrique arrived in 1999 with Bailamos, which actually I think is a perfectly reasonable record. Uh, Ricky Martin, obviously, living the Vida Loca, kick-started the whole thing. 2002, when this came out, we just had uh, Shakira, Whenever, Wherever, had been a big hit earlier in 2002. And then this came along, Hero and whatever. So then we were going through a little bit of a Latin-influenced pop phase in this country. And Christ knows why. We must have thought it was exotic or something in the miserable early 2000s. I don't know why. I mean, in fairness to Enrique, right, it is an incredibly clever marketing ploy, isn't it, to re-record all your songs in English and Spanish. So the version of this on the album is called Escapar, which I presume is the Spanish word for escape. I'm not a linguist, but I'm guessing that's the case. And it's just the same song, but sung in Spanish. So presumably that was a massive hit in Argentina and Mexico and, and Spain and all of those places, whilst Escape was a massive hit in the UK and the US. So a very canny business brain or something going on there. I actually quite like this. I don't really like it in Greek, Kate. See my previous point tonight, I'm loving you. But actually, there's almost no Latin influence in this song whatsoever. It is just he's sold out to make a straight up pop record at this stage. And it's harmless enough, inoffensive. Don't mind it at all. 
interesting bit of trivia for you here. So Julio Iglesias, his father, is, I read, the most commercially successful continental European singer in the world. Now, that does seem like quite a small definition. I don't know who else you would even include in that. But anyway, but they are the only father and sons to have topped the UK charts because Julio Iglesias had a number one and Enrique Iglesias had a number one. No other father and son have had number one hits in this country. So there you go. I don't know what that has to do with Escape specifically. It's fine. In the video to this, Enrique throws the horns. That is a hand symbol where you extend your index finger and your little finger. This hand symbol invokes the spirit of Lucifer, the Lord of Misrule. It is the universal symbol of rock music. It is recognized globally as symbolizing a satanic lust for rock and roll. And in the video, he does this. It is the single most rock and roll thing that has ever happened all the way up to last week when posh Oxbridge death metal band Royal Blood complained to the audience that they weren't clapping loudly enough at Radio 1's big weekend. This song, rock fans, for proper rock fans who are really into rock, who ride motorbikes and drink Jack Daniels. This song, has it's got it all. It's got <laughs> leather trousers, a generic-looking tennis player girlfriend, guitars so low in the mix you can't hear them, synthetic drums. Kids, if you ask your granddad what rock music is, they will point to this piece of <laughs> unmitigated shit. Good grief. This is just generic, forgettable, and frankly, Enrique can do better. Like the song that Nick reacts to in the way that I'm reacting to this song is better than this. By the way, it's an excellent record. I really think it is. Hero is a masterpiece. This is everything that's wrong with pop music. He's the biggest selling Spanish language artist of all time. Perhaps this is better in Spanish. I can't imagine it being worse. There was nothing to this song that made me want to go and find out whether or not the Spanish version is better. Now, I'm giving this a, a real kicking. I don't think it's terrible. I think it's so firmly in the meh zone. That's what makes it terrible. And it's summed up by the fact that he throws the horns to something that is so unhorn worthy. You might as well throw the horns when you're buying Cathedral City Cheddar. Now, I don't mind Cathedral City Cheddar, <laughs> but you don't go, you know what, guys, I'm going to buy some Cathedral City Cheddar. Open up the mosh pit, yo. We're going to tear this saint's piece to pieces. There is no space for the horns in this song at all. And there's just no space in my head for this song at all, really. Hard, hard pass. Enrique can do much better than this. The advantage of the Spanish language version is that you don't understand a word he's saying, so you can't find yourself idly singing along to it. Well, perhaps that's because in the Spanish language version, he's actually doing death metal vocals then. Is he going... <laughs> And then the horns make perfect sense. And all the lyrics 
I'm about decapitating nuns and burning churches. Just like that, I'm back on board. <laughs> Nick, I'm going to challenge you. I, I might rapid rebuttal squad of one has swung into action. I think there is another father and son who have had UK number ones. I refer you to Len Chip Hawks from the Tremolos, who admittedly wasn't in the Tremolos when they got to number one in 1963 with Do You Love Me? But he was in the Tremolos when they had their second number one in 1967 with Silence is Golden. And Len Chip Hawks' son, Chesney Hawks, obviously got to number one with the one and only. So there. He's not a solo artist. He's in a band, isn't he? Oh, well, you didn't specify. I've gone to all that trouble. I thought it was going to kick off then. Oh. You can sh- shove your Chesney Hawks up your escapar. <laughs> I'll edit that bit out. <clears throat> Yeah, right. There's a making of the video video of Escape on YouTube. And I I sort of skim watched it because it is 13 minutes long. But I caught Enrique saying something about his ideas for the video. And it was along the lines of, I want this video to have lots of sex because you can't have an Enrique video without sex. And I'm like, oh, what a novel concept for a video that one is. But early 2000s pop in particular was absolutely drenched in sex and also in materialism. So like, a message of a lot of hit songs of that period was, I really like having sex and I'm really good at having sex. So I need to have lots and lots of sex because no one else does sex as well as I do sex. And not only am I really good at having sex, I'm also very rich and I want to have dirty, raunchy sex in the super deluxe VIP zone of a super deluxe club that only very, very rich people go to. Oh, there was a lot of that. Trouble with all of that is, though, if you're trying that hard to be sexy, you actually end up not being very sexy at all. So although Enrique is objectively a very handsome man, I don't think he's a very sexy man. Also, while he was busy telling everyone how sexy he was, he was actually in a relationship with Anna Kornikova, and that's now been going for 22 years and counting. So I suppose he'd say, if pressed on the matter, that he was selling a fantasy. Hence, all the shagging in the car and the shagging in the toilet in this video, which is totally glamorous and aspirational because it's, it's a very nice car and it's a very nice toilet. I'm glad, for the most part, that pop music has mostly moved on from all this. Yeah, we've got Cardi B and Megan the Stallion getting to number one with their ode to intimate female juices. But more hit songs today are about other subjects like mental health and self-empowerment and heartbeats that go ba-dum, ba-dum and all manner of things. And I think that's a good progression. Yeah, interesting what Nick says, because I, too have always given Enrique a hard swerve. And that's because of the two songs of his that I know best. So one of them is Hero, which, sorry, Trev, I hated. And the other one is Tonight I'm Loving You. And in case you've not picked up on this, listeners, Tonight I'm Loving You was the radio version of the song. The actual song was Tonight I'm Loving You, where that was the substitute word. That oh, kind of repulsed me, to be honest. I've got a kind of traumatic reaction to that one. Yeah, this is the God's honest truth. At least once a week, I catch myself thinking, 
Enrique Iglesias have a hit with a song called Tonight I'm Loving You. It's like permanently affected me. So I did wonder whether in preparation for this podcast, I really should take a deep dive into the Enrique Iglesias hit making canon. But then I looked at the song titles and I felt that most of them told me all I needed to know. So we've got starts with Could I Have This Kiss Forever? It's soppy. Then it goes into Love to See You Cry and Tired of Being Sorry. And then we get to Dirty Dancer with Usher. Then we get to I Like It with Pitbull. And then we get I'm a Freak also with Pitbull. So we've talked in the first episode of season one about Mariah Carey's melismatic vocal style and how that ended up influencing a whole generation of female reality show contestants. Well, I'm going to lay the blame on Enrique for influencing a whole generation of male reality show contestants. And it's because of that vocal technique of his that drives me to distraction that I've always called the potty strain technique. You know, can be your hero, baby. And all of that. Ghastly. You'll notice that I've avoided talking about the song. That's because I think it's possibly the dullest song we've ever had on this podcast. There have been other songs that were actively bad, but as Trev said recently, a dull song is worse than a bad song because at least a bad song can still be interesting. There is nothing in this song that appeals to me on any level whatsoever, but equally there's nothing I can specifically point to and say, that's why I don't like it. I did get briefly excited when I saw that the CD single came with a Giorgio Moroder remix, but that's actually even duller. It's nearly eight minutes of nothing happening at all, so that turned out to be a blind alley. Do find the chorus a bit problematic? You can run, you can hide, but you can't escape my love. Well, that sounds like something a stalker would relate to. I'm not that big on songs that stalkers can relate to. But then I find a quote from Enrique. He says that Escape was, quote, probably the most sincere song I have written in English. And while he might be a plastic Don Juan, he's clearly not a stalker. So what do I know? Anyway, I never want to hear this song again. I didn't. I want to leap immediately in, uh, in defense of Cardi B. I get what you're saying about, you know, just sex, sex, sex. But what sets the Cardi B WAP song, apart from the numerous other examples, is now, I may be wrong about this, but is it's women saying what they want from sex, whereas the vast majority of songs about sex are men saying how good they are at sex and how they're going to get all the sex they want off all these women, whereas the Cardi B WAP song is women say, this is what I want from sex. It's as coarse as hell. It's an absolute filth fest. But I actually would say that's quite an empowering song as opposed to the disposable, I'm going to shag you in my big car, in the toilets, hey, baby, come and get on me because I'm so rich and successful and I'm a bloke and I'm going to shag you. I do think Cardi B's WAP is quite a bit different. I agree with you up to a point, and I do think WAP is a good record. I didn't really mean to imply too much of a value judgment when I cited WAP. It was more like a recent example of a very sexually assertive song. It's kind of groundbreaking in that it steps up a notch a bit. 
But I can think back to Madonna, Erotica, Justify My Love, Christina Aguilera, Dirty, Pussycat Dolls, Don't You Wish Your Boyfriend Was Hot Like Me, Loosen Up Your Buttons. Azealia Banks, 212. Yeah, good one, 212. So there is a tradition, I would say. It's not completely groundbreaking. Kind of breaks a new barrier of taste, certainly. I did do a little bit of a, I thought, you know, like I do with every artist we listen to, I always do a bit of a listen to their Spotify playlist to get a bit of context and stuff. So I did that. I did that so you two didn't have to. <laughs> and I honestly, it's terrible. Don't go there. Awful, terrible Spanish sexual nonsense. <laughs> right then. I think the next decade needs to save us. Step forward. <laughs> I've been everywhere, man, looking for someone Someone who can please me, love me all night long This is Where Have You Been by Rihanna, who finally makes a debut onto this podcast. Welcome along, Rihanna. This was the 21st of 31 top 10s that Rihanna has had between 2005 and just last year. Peaked at number six. Rihanna has had nine UK number ones in total. That's six as the lead artist, three more as a featured artist. The track has numerous co-writers and co-producers, but the best known of them are Dr. Luke and Calvin Harris Trev. There are artists who, as a DJ, are kind of ruined by their fans. Now, I want to give the caveat, hashtag not all fans for the artists that I'm about to name. But, for example, Oasis lads who look exactly how you think only ever want Oasis. Like music begins and ends with Oasis. Whilst you are playing Oasis, they are asking for Oasis. Beyonce fans, the only good music that's ever happened has come from Beyonce they have invented listening to music because they have discovered Beyonce, bow down before Beyonce. Why are you playing something that isn't Beyonce right now? Stone Roses fans are absolutely positive that you need to stop the party to play some Stone Roses, the full 97 minute with the album outrun version of Love Spreads. Uh, and, and, you know, I think all of those artists that I've just mentioned have got their moments. I actively like Oasis. I've got quite a lot of time for the Stone Roses. A couple of songs by Beyonce don't suck horrifically. Um, but artists and their fan bases are so sort of intrinsically linked that I do struggle to separate them. And whilst you can go Oasis and Stone Roses, musically aren't a million miles apart, they're certainly in the same league if they're not in the same stadium. Beyonce and Rihanna do have a bit of crossover, but I prefer Rihanna. We went through a Rihanna request epoch where she was releasing these, what felt like 40 track albums and they were all coming out as singles. And it was just Rihanna, Rihanna, Rihanna constantly. And I think Rihanna's got her moments. And I think some of her moments are absolutely spectacular I do think that there's an awful lot of filler. One of the things I like about Rihanna when in comparison to Beyonce is that I think with Rihanna, it's genuine. I think Beyonce is very contrived. I'm not doubting that she's got talent, but I think Beyonce is constantly forcing down your throat that she's really cool. Whereas Rihanna just does what she does. Sometimes it feels like, you know, she's maybe doing what she told, which I think is probably a bit unfair, but you know, she jumps around from genres, just whatever's current. That's what Rihanna's doing. But, that's just honest to God pop starring, whereas Beyonce 
feels more like she's telling you that she's really cool when what she's doing is just pop starring. I, I get that's too much for Rihanna and Beyonce for how good they are. But Rihanna's got in We Found Love with Calvin Harris, an absolutely splendid song. I think that's a pop great. I don't particularly like Umbrella, but I can see that that's a great pop tune. For me, this one is very much filler. I think what Rihanna does on this is very great. Rihanna's voice sounds excellent on this. I just don't like what they've done as a production. This is not Calvin Harris at his best. Calvin Harris is better than this. This sounds like the instrumental was made in about 30 seconds. Sonically, I think it's tripe. And I think Rihanna's vocal actually deserves better. I would not want to go and see Rihanna in concert, but I imagine she does a live version that's much better than this. Because of the production on it, I think this is, it's garbage, but it's not the worst kind of garbage. It's merely garbage to my ears, and I'm not the target audience for this. So I think you and I, Mike, went to see Rihanna, didn't we? I think, at the arena. I mean, I'm not a huge Rihanna fan, but I thought she was fantastic. I mean, she's a star. It's hard not to be a Rihanna fan. She's had so many bloody singles that it's hard not to like at least one of them, I think. And I totally agree with Trev that this is absolutely not one of them. If you listen to it, it's based on a 1950s hit called I've Been Everywhere. And you can hear it in the opening line of it. So I went to listen to I've Been Everywhere. And it's one of those songs that you know, is that you sort of subconsciously know because you've heard Johnny Cash do it or somebody. And then I went back to listen to the song and you think, okay, I see what they've done there. They've just used the melody from I've Been Everywhere in this EDM thing. I know it's Calvin Harris. It's not even all that clever. It's essentially just a sort of slightly rewritten cover version of a song that came out in 1959 with a Calvin Harris synth backing essentially so this was rihanna in a full-on thankfully relatively brief flat out edm phase she'd just come out of three massive collaborations at this point she'd done princess china with coldplay she'd done uh, we found love as trev says with calvin harris and obviously they'd stuck together for this sequel and she'd done take care with drake and then this I have listened to this song probably half a dozen times in the last few days. I could not tell you now how it goes. I mean, I can sing you I've Been Everywhere from 1959, but I can't tell you how this goes. I think it is the most vanilla, interchangeable EDM song imaginable. I mean, I know it's a Rihanna hit, but it might as well be a feat Rihanna, mightn't it? I mean... For all the individuality that she gives it, it might as well just be another Caroline Harris song with her singing on it, I think. The fact that it's her own song, to me, makes no difference whatsoever. If we were on Family Fortunes and you asked some people to name the top ten Rihanna songs that they could name, and you said this, you'd be getting a ah-ah, wouldn't you? Because nobody on the street would name this. Pointless answer. Pointless answer, absolutely right. Name a Rihanna single. Nobody is saying this. You could ask Rihanna fans to reel off a list of all of her singles and they tell you a lot of them before they get to this as well, I think. So nothing against Rihanna personally. I just think this is almost lazy, boring EDM. Could have been bloody anybody. And so I'm afraid absolutely not for me. Totally forgettable. Well, as many of our regular listeners will remember, I did express quite strong opinions about EDM a few episodes ago, and I am not going to repeat my rant this time round. You'll be glad to know. Search the Avicii episode if you want want to find me in full flow about the horrors of EDM. Did mention then, though, that 
Rihanna's The Only Girl in the World kind of marked the point where I started tuning out of Top 40 Pop for a number of years. It came at a point where seemingly every major R&B, hip-hop, grime app were putting out these identical EDM club bangers, with the notable exception of Beyonce, I should add. Yeah, Rihanna released several of them, best by far, obviously, as we found love with Calvin Harris, worked on this one as well. Came out at the time when Calvin Harris was just like knocking them out by the hour before he eventually called time on EDM and started becoming interesting again, in my opinion. Right. I'd followed Rihanna fairly closely during the 2000s. I saw her as an interesting artist who made interesting artistic choices. And that went all the way through to Russian Roulette in 2009, her last hit of the noughties. That came out in the aftermath of Chris Brown's Assault. And I thought that was a brave choice as a single. But when I listen to a EDM phase, I don't hear any interesting artistic choices being made, just commercial choices. So for me, her short EDM phase diminished her as an artist. And the gap between what she was doing and what Beyonce was doing grew wider. Now, I'm completely the opposite to Trevor on this. I've seen Beyonce live twice, 2007 and I think 2009. I've seen Rihanna twice, 2007 and 2010. From observing both of them from good seats in the arena, that's what reviewing does for you, Beyonce comes across as the artist. Rihanna comes across as the pop star. Beyonce comes across as unbelievably, supernaturally talented, charismatic, and in full artistic control of her own show. Rihanna is just that bit lacking in the charisma department. And what she did was kind of make up for it, overcompensate with ludicrous numbers of technical effects that actually kind of got in the way of the concept of the show, whereas Beyonce's effects in, enhanced it. So that's where I stand on the great Beyonce-Rihanna divide. So listening to Where Have You Been Again after many years, first thing I had to do was get over my innate antipathy to the drops because they represent a lot of what I hated about EDM. I don't think you need two drops in a four-minute pop song. Bit of overkill. But on closer inspection, well, the drops aren't that bad, really. The use of cut-up vocal samples in the second drop, that is actually good. That's actually inventive and effective. And, yeah, obviously I like the Acid House squelches because I like Acid House. So that's always going to be OK with me, subjectively. Yeah, the song, well, it's nothing much at all, is it? It's barely a song. But then this is primarily a dance track, so I'm not going to get all sniffy about songcraft. It has just enough elements to make the track work. <laughs> Nothing more than that. There are worse EDM bandwagon jumpers than this. Right, Madonna made a whole album, for God's sake. So it does get a pass from me. It's a little bit better than meh than this week. A little bit better than meh counts for quite a lot. In the sort of world of the requests that I deal with, Rihanna is the most requested artist, I think. And... For a long period, that did kind of, not ruin her for me, but it was just when you are getting bludgeoned into submission by, you know, 70 requests an hour for, oh, just Rihanna, just Rihanna. But, yeah, I stand by 
what I say. I think we are told that Beyonce is something far more credible than she actually is. We're told it's super rich and soulful. And when Beyonce did her, it's not really EDM, it's Cod House thing last year. Oh, break my soul. That is just cringe, like oh. messy nonsense. No, no, no. You like that? Interesting. Absolutely loving love break my soul. I've done my own remix. I've um, mashed it up with the uh, Purple Disco Machine remix of uh, Fat Boy Slim's Praise You. Oh my God, those two tunes go together so well. You have to pee them off the ceiling at my nights when I play that. The rat! The rat on Break My Soul! Oh! I don't really care for Break My Soul either. <gasps> I'll put my mashup on the extras playlist. It's the best version of the song. When we saw Rihanna, she did open the show by being lowered from the ceiling while singing Russian Roulette, which is a hell of an opening. Yeah. A nominally good, yeah. Yeah, got to give her that. Let's do some voting. Nick, I'll start with you, please. Okay, so tricky this week. Not a huge fan, really, of uh, really any of these. So minus one goes to Rihanna. Where have you been? Just because I've still no idea how it goes, really, even though I have heard it. In the Mezzone, I would like to put Escape by Enrique. And... Slightly surprisingly, The Cure for Our Day I'm In Love. I think it's a great record. I just don't really want to ever hear it again. In third place, I am going to put Come Outside. I did like it, Mike, when you were talking about Enrique and you did it in the voice of Mike Sarney. That was uh, be- beautifully done there. Well done. Um, in second place, I'm going to put Lady Eleanor. And I don't really like Lady Eleanor, but in the company of this I think I could at least appreciate that it's a proper record. And Christ knows how <laughs> Fantasy Island by Tight Fit is this week's winner. But he- here we are, ladies and gentlemen. Thank the randomizer. <laughs> all right, I'll do mine next. No problem at all giving the minus one to Enrique, the dullest record we've ever had on the podcast to date. Met Zone is Mike Sarno, Wendy Richard, and Tight Fit. Rihanna. Despite my antipathy to EDM, there's just enough good bits about it for me to give it third place for one point. Then it's obvious what my top two are. I'm going to put The Cure in second place and I'm going to put Lindisfarne in first place. I've really enjoyed listening to that again after all these decades. An accomplished piece of music, I feel. How about you, Trev? Uh, The Cure's dead easy, number one. It couldn't be an easier choice. Uh, And I don't think musically this is that bad a week, really. I railed against Enrique, and I think I'm putting him in meh. And I also think Rihanna's meh. I think Enrique is worse meh. I could almost go as my worst tune, but I'm going to go Mike Sarney for the worst song. It was just crap. Second place then. I will go tight fit and it could have been Lindisfarne. I think they're both good songs, totally different ends of the musical spectrum, but tight fit was the one that I actually wanted to listen to again. Most actively. I was like, Oh, I am keen to listen to that again. The Lindisfarne one makes me want to dig out the album that I've got back there somewhere. Whether or not I'll get around to that. I'm a busy man. Uh, who knows? But yeah, I think musically this isn't as bad a week as on paper. It looks. I love it. You're sticking with Sarney rather than his <laughs> actual name. Okay, I have the results. In last place currently is Enrique Iglesias, minus one point. Joint fourth, zero points. Mike Sarn and Wendy Richard and Rihanna. Top three, 
Well, we've got a tie for second place between Tight Fit and The Cure, and one point ahead of them in first place currently is Lindisfarne and Lady Eleanor. But that could all change thanks to you, our listeners. So please vote on this interesting selection of songs. I think we all agree on that. Giant third place, Tight Fit and The Cure. (laughs) That's the tagline right there. (laughs) <laughs> Listeners, your job is to separate out tight fit and the cure, which acts as somehow fit a cigarette paper between those musical artists if you can. This is this is your mission, and we would really love you to vote because um well I'm gonna be honest with you, the voting was down a bit for the last episode, and um I want the democratic process to be fully informed by us. Many opinions, as we can scoop up. If you don't want to leave comments, you don't have to leave comments. Just just give us the votes. Just put things in order. I know it's a bit weird, but we like doing it. You should like doing it too. So, yeah, first, second and third favourite songs in descending order of preference, plus your most bad and hated. Comments if you want to. Lots of ways of leaving your votes, but we favour patreon.com forward slash which decade tops. One last eight per month it costs to become a member of the supporters club. That's three pounds a month, and you get priority access to new episodes. In that you'll actually get an email telling you about them. Because if you just leave it to Twitter, it probably just get buried amongst all the rubbish that's on there. So Patreon's great, and you help us support the show financially, which would be marvellous. But you can also vote on Twitter. We are at which decade tops on Gmail. We are which decade is tops at gmail.com. Facebook, just search for which decade is Tops Pops and you will find us. You have until 6pm UK time on Monday, June the 26th. Plenty of time to deliberate and choose carefully between Tight Fit and The Cure. They are quite similar bands because another one of their big hits was about a feline. So they have <laughs> the Love Cats... And the lion sleeps tonight. So they are essentially the same band, just 10 years apart. Different generations of the same band. Well, lots of big hair in both cases, I suppose. <gasps> right, that's a wrap. Thank you very much, Nick. Goodbye. Oh, you are a one. <laughs> Thank you, Trev. Goodbye. Cheers to her. Thanks to me. Bye. Which decade is Tops for Pops?